But I would, I would add this. I would say, if you're not sitting on the premises, you're also not standing on the promises. I'm glad you came back tonight to receive a blessing. Yesterday was such a blessing. Uh, from the preaching of the word to the, to the fellowship. And um, man, it's just been good. And if we had to end it yesterday, I'd say, bring on more. But praise the Lord, we still have three more, three more nights left, including tonight. So, Brother Schwenke, so good to have you with us. And without further ado, preach the word, brother. Thank you, preacher. God bless you. All right, thank you, preacher. God bless you tonight. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Habakkuk in chapter number two. The book of Habakkuk tonight, chapter number two. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. What a great night to be with God's people in God's house. I'm grateful and thankful for your faithfulness to him. What a, a good message and song. You know, it's one thing to sing songs with our tongue. And it's another thing to live the songs with our life. And that's just a great, great illustration, a great song to remind us that uh, it is not so much the words we sing. It's the life we live when we walk out the door. And the words we sing ought to just be a testimony of the life that we live for Christ. And uh, my, just a great, great message. Enjoyed that song. Good job tonight. Thank you so much. I'm guessing Brother House didn't write that. <laughs> yeah, just taking a guess. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the clear blue. I don't know why. but You have your Bible tonight to the book of Habakkuk in chapter number two. Last night we left Habakkuk with his arms stretched out towards heaven asking the great question, how long? How long, Lord, until you intervene? And how long do I cry and you're not listening? And Lord, you could fix my disaster called Jerusalem. You could fix this city and you could fix it tonight. And yet, Lord, it's not that you can't, you won't. And Habakkuk is pleading with God saying, Lord, how long is this going to take? But you know, while we might have left Habakkuk last night on the streets of Jerusalem pleading with heaven, uh, believe it or not, God had an answer for him. And you hear the preacher saying, how long is this going to take? And I guess you could say the answer is not much longer. And God said, Habakkuk, I am getting ready to intervene. And I am going to do something that is so unbelievable. God said, you're not going to believe it. In chapter 1, verse number 5, he said, Behold you among the heathen and regard it and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. I mean, here's Habakkuk saying, Lord, how long until you fix this mess? And the Lord basically said, Habakkuk, I'm going to fix it in your lifetime. It's not much longer now. Hang on, man. I'm about ready to fix the problem, and I'm going to fix it permanently. Now, what do you know? In the so-called minor prophets, we actually have a verse that the modern ministers could use or perhaps say misuse. I mean, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 5, isn't that a beautiful thing? God said, wonder marvelously. God is going to do something wonderful, and God is going to do something that is marvelous. You know, we read those words, and a little bit later, he says, it's going to be unbelievable. Wonderful and marvelous and unbelievable. And, and you know, the problem with those words is that we kind of use them with one channel of thinking. I suppose that we could go out to the coast and watch the sun set into the Pacific tonight and, and see the sky splashed with colors from Almighty God. And, and, you know, a beautiful sunset is certainly a wonderful thing. But, you know, you could also watch a Mount St. Helens explode to the sky and, and wonder at something like that and marvel at something like that. You know, we might watch and see a, a, a beautiful tranquil scene with a, a, a beautiful mountainside or go to a crater lake and just see beauty beyond imagination. And indeed, we would wonder and marvel at that. But you also have to wonder when a hurricane blows through Oklahoma City 
And you understand, wonder and marvel has two different trains of thought. And the Lord said, you're going to wonder, man. You're going to marvel at this. This is going to be unbelievable. And I can almost hear Habakkuk break out into song. Something good is going to happen. You know, the Lord's going to do something wonderful and something marvelous and something unbelievable. But I'm afraid the Lord had something else in mind. Because in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse number 6, remember Habakkuk is saying, how long till you fix the problem? And God said, I'm going to fix the problem in your life. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, And notice the words carefully. God says, for lo, I. There's no doubt who does this now. I raise up the Chaldeans. We know the Chaldeans in the Bible as Babylonians. I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the Lamb to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. In other words, the story begins with Habakkuk saying, how long till you fix this? And God said, not much longer, son. I'm getting ready to fix it. But when I fix it, it's going to be a permanent fix. What I'm going to do, I'm going to wipe you out. The enemy the most fearsome enemy in Habakkuk's day, the Babylonians, are going to invade Jerusalem. They are going to destroy your city. They are going to take over your habitations, your houses. God is saying, Habakkuk, what I'm going to do is fix the problem for good. I'm going to wipe you right out. You know, in the rest of Habakkuk chapter 1, you pretty much have Habakkuk saying, Lord, I have reconsidered my former prayer request. You know, I might have been a little hasty last night when I was screaming out, how long, how long? And now the preacher looks up to heaven and says, you can't do this. You know, Lord, we're a mess, but they're a bigger mess. You know, we have problems, but they're a bigger problem than we are. And for all the disaster that Jerusalem has become, Lord, you are too holy and you are too just. I mean, he's pulling out all the cards now. Lord, you can't do this. They're worse than we are. So when we come tonight to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 1, you get the idea we have a mighty confused preacher. Here is the story of a Habakkuk who started out by screaming, how long till you fix this? And God said, I am going to answer your prayer. I am going to fix it. I'm going to wipe you out. And so in chapter 2, verse number 1, if you're able tonight, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to God's words? (coughs) Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 1. The preacher said, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I mean, Habakkuk climbs up a watchtower on the top of the city gates. (coughs) And Habakkuk says, boy, am I going to get it now. I mean, Habakkuk says, the Lord's going to reprove me now. There's only so long you argue with Almighty God and get away with it. And Habakkuk's thinking, what in the world am I going to answer when the Lord comes after me? And to his stunned amazement in verse number two, there's no chastisement and there is no rebuke and there is no reproving of the preacher. Instead, the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. God said, Habakkuk, I want to make this so simple like Paul Revere. A guy can get on a horse, run up and down the land and preach the message. What do you do when everything is falling apart? Father, as we go to the Bible, we ask for your help tonight. And and I pray that the word of God is mighty unsettling in the book of Habakkuk. And yet, would you help us understand the wrath of God is serious business. And in the midst of judgment, there are things you are expecting from your people at Corridor Baptist Church. 
So tonight, we desperately need your help, and we pray to that end. In the great name of Jesus, we come. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. To say that Habakkuk needs revival would be one of the misunderstandings of the Old Testament. I mean, you are talking about a nation that is on the verge of collapse. The wrath of God is ready to cascade in Niagara right upon the city of Jerusalem. Why, they have come to their last chance. They have come to their last hour and it's gone. And now the preacher is saying, Lord, how long do you deal with this? And God said, it's right around the corner. It's the next thing that happens. The Babylonians already have have Jerusalem in their crosshairs. They have gone to Egypt now. They have conquered the Egyptians. Next on the list after the Assyrians and the Egyptians is the great city of Jerusalem. I mean, the clock is ticking and there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. If you ever saw a people and you ever saw a city that needed revival, well, it would be the city of Jerusalem. And so in chapter 3 and verse number 2, the preacher is going to cry out for revival. But what I notice in the book of Habakkuk, that his definition of revival is very different than ours. You know, when we say America needs revival, and, and I beg to differ with that statement, I don't believe it at all. Quite frankly, America doesn't need to be revived. America needs to be saved. The revival is for a people of God. It is a reawakening. America doesn't need to go back to some spiritual principle. America's people needs to bow their knee in repentance and faith and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need is to be saved as a nation. The people of this country are lost. They don't need to be reawakened. They need to be saved. But I get it when people say America needs revival. And somehow we have this idea that God is just going to fix our country. And there's a lot of different definitions of that. Well, you know, the abortion clinics will close down. And the houses of sin will be straightened out. And the drug pushers will be off the streets. And, and we have a nice long laundry list of all the things that we think revival means. And so we want God to revive America and to fix America. And, and somehow I guess we have this thinking that if all the politicians in Washington would come together and they would go out to the Washington Monument and stretch their hands towards heaven and have a kumbaya meeting where they love the Lord together, that somehow this is all going to get fixed. And my friend Habakkuk looked for revival, but I'm afraid he had a very different idea. In chapter 3, verse 2, he said, O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. He said, O Lord, revive, there's that word, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. The midst of the years, he's saying, in my midst of years, in my lifetime. Lord, you've already told me that in my life, the Babylonians are going to wipe Jerusalem out. So now he is saying, in the midst of the years, Lord, I want revival. But do you know how he defines revival? This is kind of frightening. To Habakkuk, he said at the end of chapter 3, 2, in wrath, remember mercy. You see, to us, revival means get rid of the wrath. To us, revival means let's just not have the judgment. To us, revival means, Lord, even though, you know, we're evil and wicked, let's just pretend it never happened. Let's just go ahead and bypass all of that. To us, we say, instead of wrath, let's have mercy. That's not what Habakkuk prayed. 
He said, Lord, if you're going to revive your work of Jerusalem in the midst of the years, what that means is that when the wrath of God is falling, when the Babylonians are marching down the streets, when the bodies of our princes are hanging over the city walls, when there is starvation, cannibalism, when there is blood flowing down the streets like a river, in the middle of the wrath of God that is coming down upon Jerusalem, have mercy upon your righteous people. Not in wrath, remove mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, as the wrath of God is falling upon our city, would you please remember righteous Jeremiah? Would you please remember a faithful preacher like Habakkuk? I got to tell you, his prayer for revival doesn't sound like our prayer of revival. What Habakkuk is asking God to do, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody in a prayer meeting ask God to do. Lord, as your wrath is falling down upon a people that are so deserving, somehow have mercy on the righteous man, the righteous woman is a very different definition of revival because everything is coming apart. So what exactly is a Habakkuk supposed to do? Because if you read the book of Habakkuk, man, everywhere you look, it just seems like disaster after disaster. I mean, as you read the book of Habakkuk, I counted in our our English Bible 12 question marks. And that kind of says it all because this is a very short book in the Bible. And if there's one thing you know from studying the Bible, especially in the New Testament, sometimes Bible sentences can go a long way. I mean, they can go a long, long way. And so for a short little book like Habakkuk to have 12 questions and 12 question marks, maybe that says it all, doesn't it? Because it all starts with the question, how long? And from there, there's the story of a preacher that doesn't know what to do. And all he can do is shoot questions at heaven. And what about this? And what are we going to do about this? And how are we going to handle this? And there is so much uncertainty. And there is so much wickedness. And there is so many problems that Habakkuk just doesn't know what to do. He's got a headache this big. And it's going to be worse tomorrow than it is today. The wheels are coming off. Everything is a disaster about to happen. And all the preacher can do is scream his questions towards heaven. I mean, the book of Habakkuk is full of uncertainty. The book of Habakkuk is full of question marks. And it really boils down to Habakkuk on the watchtower saying, what am I to do? Lord, what is a preacher going to do? Because you see, as God deals with his man, Habakkuk, and we might say in the book of Habakkuk, he is dealing with Jerusalem. He certainly is. But more so, he is dealing with his prophet. He is dealing with his man like he wants to deal with you and he wants to deal with me. And in the midst of a world that is falling apart, a city that is full of violence and wickedness, a city where everything is turned against righteous people, where the wicked are winning and they're surrounding people that are godly. When everything is falling apart and from the top of a watchtower, a lonely preacher is saying, what am I supposed to do? God says, Habakkuk, above everything else, There is something I want you to remember. And so tonight when we come to the book of Habakkuk, it's awfully easy to see ourselves in America, isn't it? It's awfully easy to look at Portland and look at Jerusalem and and say, well, what is the difference between the two? And you know, if the wrath of God were to fall upon America right now, and I mean, if it fell good and hard, every single one of us would know the Bible would only bow our head and say, this is justice and this is right for all the sins of America and all the wickedness of religion, for all of our leaders and all of our judges, for people that claim to be saved and the hypocrisy in lives. 
if the wrath of God were to come niagering down upon the cities of America, the little towns of America, anyone who knows their Bible and knows the Lord could only bow their head and say, this is just, this is right. So what are we supposed to do? You know, all of a sudden in the middle of Habakkuk, we find the theme of the book of Habakkuk. But it's not just the theme of Habakkuk, it is the theme of the Word of God. And and I mean, when you're reading Habakkuk, it's one verse upon another verse upon another verse. The wrath of God, the destruction of the city. I mean, in chapter number one, he describes the Babylonians and why they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceeds of themselves. They're their own authority. He talks about their soldiers. He talks about their horses. They're like leopards. And I mean, by the time you're done with all the power of American forces, we still tremble at such a description. In chapter 2, he describes what happens to the wicked. And, and yet all of a sudden, it just seems to come out of absolutely nowhere with Habakkuk trembling and Habakkuk having all these questions and Habakkuk wondering what to do and Habakkuk on the watchtower saying, what's next? And Habakkuk literally hearing the message, seeing the vision that his beloved city is about to be wiped out. All of a sudden, in the middle of everything, there is Habakkuk chapter 2 in verse number 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. And all of a sudden, this Habakkuk is looking at his city and he sees the violence and the sin. He sees the wickedness and the wrong. He sees the injustice. He sees the evil. And now God says, in your lifetime, you're not only going to see this wicked city, but you're going to see the wrath of God come against it. And for all the troubles and all the battles, all of a sudden, right here in the middle of Habakkuk, well, we not only get the theme of Habakkuk, we get the theme of the Bible. God is still on his throne. Really? All of a sudden, God says, Habakkuk, I know you got all these 12 questions. I know you got all these worries and their doubts, but, but in the midst of all your burdens, just take a look. And if you look up to glory, what you will see through the eyes of faith is that God is still on his throne. In other words, well, it's kind of like the boys and girls. We used to sing this chorus. I don't know if they still do or not. If they don't, if we don't, we should. The little chorus says, everything's all right in my father's house. Of course it is. God is still on his throne. You know, the one thing about heaven is everything's right on time. Everything is right on schedule. The Lord's not going to get up tomorrow morning. Well, he's not going to slumber and sleep tonight. But he's not going to face a a Tuesday morning and and tell the angels, roll out the TV, turn on Fox News, and and let's find out what's happening next. Now, the Lord's not panicked. The Lord's not worried. The Lord's not fretting. And the Lord's got everything right on control. Our country is a mess, but everything's right under control with him. There may be no baby formula here, but the grocery stores in heaven are more than well stocked. I got to tell you, our world may be wondering about the monkeypox, whatever that is, but heaven's got nothing to worry about. Everything is right on schedule. Everything is right on time. God's throne is still right there in heaven. It hasn't gone anywhere. And not only is his throne in heaven, God is still on his throne. And so now God had a message for Habakkuk because, you know, Habakkuk could well remind us of us. And as Habakkuk is sweating it out and panicked and fearful and screaming and yelling and his blood pressure is going to the moon, all of a sudden in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse number 20, in the middle of it all, God said, Habakkuk, you need to know my throne is in heaven. I am still on the throne. And look at what he says. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see that little phrase, keep silence? 
in the language of the Old Testament, that phrase, keep silence, you know what it is? It is how a mother would tell her little child, shh. In fact, in the Spanish Bible, I was preaching through an interpreter in Peru a few months ago. <laughs> That's exactly what that says. In other words, Habakkuk, you got these 12 questions and you don't know what to do. And God in the middle of it all says, Habakkuk, everything's right on time. Everything's right on schedule. Everything is good in heaven. Habakkuk, the throne is still here and I'm still sitting on the throne. So God said, Habakkuk, shh, that's God's word. God just tells Habakkuk to be silent. No, sir, Habakkuk, you don't have to figure it all out. and You don't have to come up with the plan. No, sir, Habakkuk, you don't have to manipulate. You don't have to scream. You don't have to worry. No, sir, Habakkuk, you don't have to be living in a state of panic. God's throne is still in heaven. God is still on the throne. So he has a word for Habakkuk and he's got a word for you and he's got a word for me tonight. And that word is everything's all right in my father's house. May not be all right in our house. It may not be all right in our country. It may not be all right in Hillsboro or Portland or Phoenix where I live. Things may not be all right today, and they certainly may not be all right tomorrow. They may not be all right in Washington, D.C. or in Salem. Now, things may not be all right in this old wicked pagan world. Of course they're not. But, you know, our citizenship is not in this wicked pagan world. Our home does not happen to be in Hillsboro, Oregon tonight. If you're born again, our citizenship is in heaven if you're born again, we look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. If you're born again, we're living for another country. And in that country, the Bible says in 2.20 that there is a throne, that God is upon that throne, that God's throne is in heaven, that everything's all right in my Father's house. And so tonight, God has a message for you and for me. But what are we going to do about all these cities burnt? But what are we going to do about the president and the politicians and the elections? And, and what are we going to do? Don't you know that in a few months, we're going to have the most important election ever? Really? I thought the last one was the most important one ever. Come to think of it, the one before that was the most important one ever. Come to think of that, the one, you know, the first time I voted, like in the 70s, that was the most important one ever. I'm guessing we're never going to get over the most important one ever. So God has a message. Oh, we can choose to turn the TV on and watch the news hour after hour after hour after hour and watch and listen to the guy on the radio hour after hour and then watch the journalist on TV hour after hour and we can spend 12 hours a day listening to the same news stories over and 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 again. Or we can hear the Lord say, everything's all right in your father's house. What is a Habakkuk to do? So here's the preacher on the watchtower saying, what am I going to do now? Everything is falling apart. And the only thing worse than the mess we've got now is the mess we're going to have tomorrow. There is panic. There is fear. I Habakkuk doesn't know where to go and what to do. So what is it that God wants from his preacher? More importantly tonight, what is it that God wants from you and from me in times like these? 
Would you notice God had three things for his preacher to do? They're awfully simple tonight. Can I show you them, please, from the Bible? With Habakkuk on the watchtower in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, uh, God said, all right, I'm going to make this so plain. A guy can put it on a writing table, jump up on a horse, run up and down the land, and tell people what I want. And what God wants is in verse number 4 of chapter 2. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. You know, there's nothing right about somebody with an arrogant attitude. God is looking down, and you know, Jerusalem was pretty good for that. They boasted, we are the joy of the whole earth. Why, the ministers of Jerusalem, as Habakkuk was preaching, they were saying, Habakkuk's wrong. God's not going to destroy us. God's not going to judge us. Look right over there. What do you see right over there? There's the temple. And as long as we got the temple in Jerusalem, everything is good. It doesn't matter. God is never going to let this city go down. Little did they know, they may have had a building called the temple, but the glory of God had flown that temple. It was gone. And now the Bible tells us there's nothing to be upright about. There's nothing to be boasting about. There's nothing to be lifted up about. Because at the end of verse number four, with everything falling apart, with disaster on every side, with the enemy about ready to wipe out Jerusalem, do you see what the Lord said? The just shall live by his faith. All right, Habakkuk, here's what I want you to do. When the Babylonians are wiping the city out, when there is death and carnage, when you think it's bad now, when it really does get bad, he said, number one, I want you to do right and trust God. I want you to be a just man who trusts in me. I want you to be the just man who is living by his faith in the Lord. In other words, Habakkuk, no matter how tough the road, no matter how hard the days, you you just start living that little old chorus. I just keep trusting my Lord as I walk along. One of my favorite poems, I think, of all time was written by probably the number one poet of world history. This poet, I do believe, wrote more poems than anybody else. Uh, The name of the poet was Mr. Or, could it be Miss? Anonymous. Whoever that guy was or that lady was, they sure wrote a lot of poems, you know. And Mr. or Miss or Mrs. Anonymous, whoever they might be, wrote it like this. I passed a sandlot yesterday where some kids were playing ball. I strolled along the third base line within the fielder's call. Say, what's the score? I asked the chap and he yelled to beat the stuffing. There's no one out. The bases are full. They're 43 to our nothing. (laughs) You're getting beat, aren't you, my lad? And then in no time flat, he answered, no, sir, not as yet we're not. Because our side ain't been to bat. You know, sometimes we take a look at the scoreboard and we're losing 43 to nothing. The bases are loaded. There's nobody out. There's nowhere to turn. And this doesn't look so good. And that's when we need to realize that, hey, our side ain't been to bat yet. You know, we're fixing to have the comeback of the ages. And one of these days, the King of kings and the Lord of lords shall descend from heaven with a shout. One day he's coming in the clouds to take his children home. A few years later, he's coming back to the earth where King Jesus shall reign forever and ever. There will be peace. There will be justice. There will be righteousness. What a day that is going to be. So it may not look good right now. And we may look up at the scoreboard and think it's even worse than we thought it was. But you know, our side ain't been to bat yet. That's why God said, Habakkuk, I know Jerusalem's a mess. I know Judah's a mess. I know everything else is a mess. I know there's no fixing it, it seems like. 
But he also said, everything's okay right here. Everything's all right in my father's house. So Habakkuk, what you're going to do is you're just going to keep being a just man. You're going to keep on doing the right thing. And then you're just going to keep on trusting me. Your confidence is not in your king. It is in the Lord. Your confidence is not in your princes. It is in the Lord. Your confidence, confidence is not in your religious leadership. It is in the Lord. Your confidence is not in your human friends, but it is in the Lord. And you know, when the child of God realizes no matter how dark, no matter how desperate, no matter how confusing things may be, my God is still on the throne. His throne is in heaven. I can keep on doing right and I can keep on trusting God. It may not be easy and it may be get tougher as the days go by, but God is looking for a people tonight at Corridor Baptist Church that are going to do right and trust God. No wonder God says, come down, Habakkuk. It may not be all right in Jerusalem and it's not supposed to be. You know, what do we think is going to happen in America? I, I, can, I can give you the prophecy tonight if you want it. I know exactly what's going to happen. Things are going to get worse and worse. Sorry, but that's what the Bible says. You think, is it going to get fixed? Not anytime soon. Perilous times shall come. Not good times. No, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse until one day the trumpet sounds and you and I are gone. My friend, one day Jesus comes to take us home and until that day comes, I'm sorry. He's just looking for some people that are going to grit their teeth. He's going to look for some people with some fortitude, some people with enough courage to stand up in an evil day and say no matter what the neighbors do, no matter what everybody else does, I am going to do what's right and I am going to trust God. The just shall live by his faith is what God wants from his people when everything is falling apart. Hey, Habakkuk. I know it's a disaster in Jerusalem. Hey, Corridor Baptist Church, the Lord says, I know it's a disaster in America. But there is a message for God's people that comes right out of the pages of Habakkuk chapter 2. God says, shh, everything's good. Number one, we're going to do right and trust God. But notice number two, when you go to chapter 3, verse 2, we read this verse a moment ago, but, but look at the first part of the verse, if you would. Because with everything coming apart, the preacher said, or actually in chapter 3, he is singing. He said, oh Lord, I have heard thy speech. Oh Lord, I have heard thy speech. So what does God want? Number one, he wants me to trust him. Now number two, God wants me to know him. He wants me to listen to his word. You know, I can't read the book of Habakkuk without remembering that great day when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and he prayed down the fire of God and why the people gathered around Elijah and said, the Lord Jehovah, he is God. It is one of those great moments. I mean, if that's national revival, that would have been it. The people are saying, the Lord, he is God. And you are expecting to go to the next chapter in the Bible and to read a story of great revival of an entire nation coming back to the Lord. But instead... The queen says, I'll make your life like the one of those dead preachers by this time tomorrow. And the Bible tells us that Elijah, who could stand against King Ahab, Elijah could stand against 450 false ministers of the World Council of Churches, Elijah that could stand against wickedness beyond the pale, is now the preacher who is literally running for his life. From Dan, that's the furthest northern point, to Beersheba, that's the furthest southern point. I mean, he's coming from Nome, Alaska, down to Key West, Florida. He's as far out of this as he can go. He is running for his life to escape the wrath of this wicked Jezebel. And now we find Elijah hiding in a cave, and, and the Lord asks him a pretty good question, doesn't he? What in the world are you doing here? 
And you know what Elijah has? He does the same thing you and I do when we get upset. You know what he does? He makes a little speech. You know you do this. And we get this all rehearsed in our mind and we know what we're going to say. Do you know what the problem is? That we come up with all these great speeches and nobody ever asked to hear him. But the amazing thing is the Lord has to hear it. And I know it was a speech because Elijah gives it word perfect two times in a row. You know what he said. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. I'm the only one who's left. And they seek my life. And they're going to kill me. And they're coming after me to take it away. And, and he goes through this little pity party. Woe is me. Ah, my life is so hard. And the pressure is so great. And I can't take it. And so God said, okay, Elijah, come out of that cave. And standing on the side of the mountain now, all of a sudden there's this great and strong wind. And a tornado comes blowing through. And, you know, I could just imagine this old whoop preacher. He's just standing there and he's thinking, that's it. The Lord's going to get me now. He's going to blow me away in this tornado and nobody's ever going to hear from me again. And he just doesn't have the energy to fight or to run. And he stands there and the wind is blowing and the dust is everywhere and the rocks are flying past his head. And And Elijah must be thinking, that's the end of everything. And all of a sudden, the wind dies down. And God was not in the wind. And here's old Elijah thinking, whoa, man, that was close. And and all of a sudden, the earth starts shaking, you know. And all of a sudden, the boulders are just rolling down that mountain. And, And I suppose they're coming right next to Elijah, and he doesn't know where to go. And even if he did, he couldn't get there. And Elijah's thinking, that's it. He didn't blow me away in the wind, and now he's going to put me under a pile of rubble. He's going to bury me under this earthquake, and nobody will ever hear from me again. And he's just got to be standing there, and that mountain is falling apart right around him. And suddenly the earth stops quaking and the God who was not in the wind is the God who was not in the earthquake. And there's old Elijah thinking, whoa, that was close. And, and all of a sudden, there's a fire. The whole mountainside is on fire and there's nowhere to turn. And Elijah's got to be thinking, you know, he didn't blow me away in the tornado and he didn't bury me under the rubble of the earthquake. And now what he's going to do, he's going to burn me to a crisp. There's going to be nothing but a pile of ashes left on the side of this mountain. God's going to wipe me out right now. And then the fires died and God wasn't in the wind and he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire. But then what comes next? You know, still small voice of God. You know what God wants from his people? Do you know the problem? The problem is there's too many Christians that are spending 12 hours a day listening to Fox News, going to every website, panicking and worrying about every journalist. You can name them all. And that's the problem because it's like people wake up in the morning. They're almost trembling like they're on a drug, you know. It's, and it's not I wake up in the morning and I need a cup of coffee. I know where I'm at. I'm not going to preach against that, but... But it's even worse. It's like, I need the breaking news. I need the breaking news. You know, they're not even awake for five minutes and they're already filling their mind with every polluted story, everything imaginable. I gotta get the breaking news, you know? And, and people sit for three hours in the morning in front of the TV and they just talk about the same news story. I, I mean, you know, they, they don't have much to say and even if they did, they don't know how to say it. So it's the same breaking news story. You, you do realize if you woke up tomorrow and you turned on the TV and, and, and the newsreader said, Big news story. The plane just landed safely at PDX Airport. You know, you, you do realize you'd say, whoa, I, I guess I don't need the news, and you'd go have a good day. I mean, you do understand they have to have breaking news because fear equals money. 
And when the news media has you afraid, they have you right where they want you. You cannot turn your eyes away from the breaking news banner. What is it going to say? The same thing it said 10 minutes ago. And people just feed on this hour after hour. And then from 9 to 12, it's this guy on the radio. And 12 to 3, it's that guy on the radio. And at night, it's her and it's him. And it's this thing and that thing. And it's all the same thing. And it's hour after hour after hour after hour after hour of all the bad news and all the stuff you're supposed to be afraid of. And all these things that may or may not come to pass. But you know, you can't do anything about it. And people spend hour after hour after hour filling their hearts with fear. And if they do read the Bible, it's a nice little psalm of the day, or it's a nice little devotion of the day, or even then it's a nice little blog of the day or tweet of the day. And the Bible just sits on the shelf, and humanism and their thinking just attacks our minds hour after hour. No wonder people are in a panic. No wonder people are afraid of everything. No wonder people are worried about it all. No wonder people are afraid to go out of the house. No wonder people are afraid to leave the basement. No wonder people are living in absolute lives of terror and fear. No wonder they live like they do. Of course they do. Their lives are consumed by fear because they are feeding on it hour after hour after hour. Turn the TV off. Shut the internet down. And just get alone with the still, small voice and forget about what people say about the Bible, you and your Bible. And when you just turn to the still small voice of God and forget the loud, angry voices of humans, after a while, do you know what the Bible says? He will speak peace to his people. In other words, what you'll get tomorrow morning is, shh, everything's all right in my Father's house. What's a Habakkuk to do? Here's a man on the, on the watchtower saying, Lord, what now? It's bad, and it's going to get worse. I thought it was a mess now, and you're telling me you're going to wipe our city out, that you're going to fix the problem permanently, so what am I going to do? And God says, let me make this so plain that a guy could jump on the horse and tell any righteous man or woman what to do. Number one, I want you to trust me. Number two, I want you to know me. Listen to the shh, the still small voice of God. And then notice the third thing, and it's in that same verse. I want you to trust me. I want you to know me. Now he said, I want you to fear me. Oh, Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. So now the Bible goes to that place where we're not supposed to go. It is that topic that shall never be spoken of in modern houses of religion. It is that one thing that the pretty ministers with their big toothy smiles will never, ever, ever discuss. It's called the fear of God. Now, before we think we have to redefine it and make it say something it doesn't say, well, look at chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk said, when I heard, heard what God said, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. That's the fear of God. In other words, God said, Habakkuk, I want you to trust me. I'm still on the throne. Everything's okay. I want you to listen to the still small voice of God. And when you do, Habakkuk, I want you to number three, to learn how to fear me. God is not our good buddy in the skies our pal. 
God is not the ATM God that whenever you need something, you stick your card in, punch in the code, and God is going to make you healthy, wealthy, prosperous, and happy. This is not the purpose of God's existence. God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son. God has given the invitation that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But that very same God said, He that believeth not the Son shall not see you a life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Our God is a God to be feared, a God to be honored, a God to be revered, a God before who our knees should bow. The Bible tells us, God says, Habakkuk, I want you to know me. And the more you know me, you're going to fear me. You're going to tremble before me. When was the last time that we trembled before God? When was the last time that we caught a vision of our God in the Bible and we saw his holiness and his purity? And like the righteous men and ladies of the Bible, when we see the pureness and the holiness of God, we are not impressed with ourselves and our opinions. All we can do is humble ourselves and fall down before him. I am unworthy. I am unclean. I am so helpless and hopeless. When was the last time we trembled in fear before God? Habakkuk, God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to know me. I want you to fear me because no matter what happens next, he said, the throne is still in heaven. I'm still sitting on the throne. So we have the most amazing story. You know, when we began the book of Habakkuk last night in chapter 1, verse number 1, it started with the words, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. It starts with a preacher in panic, a preacher who's screaming at heaven. It talks about a preacher with a burden. It's weighing him down. I got this thing. It's 24 hours a day. I never can forget it. I never can stop thinking about it. It just weighs me down. It just takes over everything. It saps me of my joy. It just robs me of everything. He said, I got this burden that I just can't shake. Everything is falling apart in my country. And if that weren't bad enough, do you know how bad it was going to get? Well, well, look at chapter 3, verse number 17. It says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flocks shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not a recession, and that is not even a depression. That is what comes next. When you live in an agricultural society, if there is no more fruit in the vine, if there are no more fig trees producing figs, figs is the fruit of the poor, the vine would be the fruit of the rich man. If there are no olives in a place like Jerusalem, if, if the fields are no longer bringing forth crops, they've been destroyed. If there are no flocks to eat and there are no herd to provide meat, in other words, Jerusalem is going to starve. Whatever is beyond depression is what happens to Jerusalem. And the Bible describes in the book of Lamentations this story, cannibalism. That's how bad it got. In other words, it all starts with Habakkuk. His blood pressure is rising through the roof. He says, I can't take it anymore. I got this burden and I just can't shake it. And when we come to the end of the book of Habakkuk, the last thing we read about the country is that this thing is going to get so bad there won't, forget about food for the babies, there won't be food for anybody. That's how bad this is going to get. So in verse number 18, we would expect Habakkuk to say, what am I going to do now? Maybe to launch into another screaming attack against heaven. 
But look what he said. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You've got to be kidding me. Didn't you just see what God said? You thought it was bad in chapter 1, verse 1, when you had this burden. Forget that. He said the enemy is going to ravage your city. They're going to besiege it, surround it. They're going to choke you off. You're going to starve. There's going to be death. There's going to be carnage. The Bible describes people that are starving to death, stick men walking down the streets. This is what's awaiting Habakkuk in the city of Jerusalem. And Do you see what he just said? I'll rejoice in the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, one day in America, in our churches, we're going to grow up and we're going to discover there's a big difference between being joyful and being happy. They are not the same thing. You know, a real Christian can have joy at a funeral. And that doesn't mean they laugh and they start telling jokes. And quite frankly, you know, in a lot of churches, there's a lot of frivolity. And, and I know that happiness is a good thing and joy is a good thing. and We ought to enjoy the brethren. But uh, I found it very fascinating two years ago reading the story uh, 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 of Richard Wombrandt. And when he talked about the suffering the churches behind the iron block they took for Christ, he said when he came to America, he was stunned at how much frivolity there was and silly laughter. You know, the Lord's going to find a way to sober us up. And it's not funny when people are starving. It's not funny when your neighbors are walking down the street like stick figures. What's going to happen, God says, is not going to be pretty. There's a big difference between being happy and being joyful. And even in the worst of days, Habakkuk could say, I rejoice in the Lord. I joy in the God of my salvation. Not the events of this day, they're not taking my joy away anymore. In chapter number one, he has no joy. In chapter number one, he's panicking. In chapter number one, he's screaming for God to do something. At the end of chapter number three, everything has fallen apart. And now the guy who had panic and worry is the guy who has a heart full of joy in the middle of everything. And if that weren't enough, look at the next verse, verse number 19. The Lord is not only my joy, but he said, the Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. And this is where we have to make sure we're looking at our Bible through Middle Eastern eyes, not through American eyes. You know, to us, when we think of the deer and the deer in the headlight, you know, the mighty hunter cracks the rifle, and the next thing you know, that deer is running for its life. And we imagine a deer, the trouble has come, so the deer is bounding away. It's running and jumping over fences. It's jumping over rock piles. That deer is running 100 miles away, zigzagging back and forth to get out of the way of the mighty hunter. In America, a deer runs for its life. But in the Middle East, they have a very, very different picture of the deer. A few months ago, I was in the country of Jordan and, and uh, just had a magnificent time. Just flew into Amman, got a car, and started going to Bible sites. Except for Israel, there are more Bible sites in Jordan than any other country in the world. And so one day, I found myself taking a trip to Petra. And my, is that ever an amazing place. And for all that the spooks and all that the rest of the people get out of Petra, my, I just took a walk through Petra and the sick they call is kind of the canyon that gets narrower and narrower and higher and higher. And you could put your hand here and put your hand here and literally touch the thing. That sick was so amazing that four or five good sharp shooting soldiers with their bow and arrow could hold off an entire army. 
because no matter how big your army was, you had to file it down to single file. And those guys would sit up in the cleft of the rock and they would just shoot and they could save their whole city. It was an amazing place. And yet as I sat in Petra, I opened my Bible to Obadiah and I heard the Lord talk about the Edomites who maybe lived right there or they lived in a place just like that. And they boasted, our soldiers are in the cleft of the rock. Our soldiers can take out anybody who attacks us. And they asked that arrogant question, who can bring us down? You know why Obadiah is in the Bible? Because the Edomites said, nobody can bring us down. We're sitting in the cleft of the rock. And you know their problem? They forgot to look up. There was somebody that was higher than them. And higher than the soldiers in the cleft of the rock of Edom, God says, yeah. I will bring thee down. It's just amazing. I made my way through Petra, and it really is quite a fascinating place. And I, and I came to, you know, to tour all the rest of the stuff, and I'm just kind of sitting there just soaking it all in. And, and all of a sudden, I looked, and right in front of me there, there was a mountain, you know. And, and who would have guessed, on top of that mountain, that's where Aaron was buried. Aaron got around a lot after he died. There's four different mountains, I think, in the Middle East where Aaron was buried. It's really quite the amazing thing. I mean, boy, I don't know how that works, you know. But uh, that was one of the places. That's their claim to fame. And, and there it is. And I was kind of staring up at this. It's just a beautiful mountain, you know, just a ragged edge. And, and all of a sudden, right there in front of me, and I happened to be studying a Bacchus at the time, all of a sudden, right there, this deer shows up. And, and I mean, I'm just looking up, and here's this deer coming to the edge of this massive mountain. And, and it's not a beautiful sloping mountain. There's just this massive rock cliff. And, and why this deer, as you see in the desert, comes to the edge of this cliff, and that thing's going to fall off. That thing is going to go right off the edge. And all of a sudden, from where I looked, it stood, it looked like that deer had come right to the edge of that cliff. I don't know how much room there really was. But you know, those four hinds feet were just standing firm and they were just standing sure. And that's the deer of the Middle East. In America, we think of a deer running for its life and hiding. Aye, the troubles have come. The deer better run. The deer better find some place to bed. The deer better find some safe place. The deer better run and hide for its life. But in the Middle East, the deer doesn't run and hide for its life. The deer has got his hinds feet, so he will make me to walk upon the high places. God's going to give the feet of a deer to Habakkuk, not so that he can run and hide, not so that he can go down to the basement and tremble in fear, not so that he can run to some compound up in northern Michigan someplace and and cower out in the woods, but he's going to give him four solid feet like a deer has to stand in the middle of the most troublesome time to stand on the rocky edge and when it seems like the world is collapsing and there's nothing but trouble and disaster, Habakkuk said, I rejoice in the Lord when everything is falling apart and crumbling. God has given me feet that'll stand in the most dangerous of places to stand firm when everything is falling apart. From how long is this going to take to standing upon the rock Everything has changed for Habakkuk. And you know the reason? Because through it all, in the middle of Habakkuk, in the middle of the turmoil, in the middle of the trouble, God said, Habakkuk, the throne is good in heaven. Everything's all right. And by the time we get to the end of Habakkuk, the guy who starts out screaming and yelling, is the guy who says, I rejoice. I'm standing firm because my Savior is on the
everything is still all right in my father's house tonight. If you're born again, yep, everything's good. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you do have a lot to be afraid of. There is a lot to worry about, and I don't mean what's going to happen in the news tomorrow. I don't mean what's going to happen in another election. I don't mean what's going to happen next. If you're not saved, you have eternity to be afraid of. The wrath of God abides upon ungodliness, and yet through it all, the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross for you and for me. Buried in the ground, he rose again. And the Bible says that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. In the Bible, Jesus is not a Savior. He is the Savior. He is not a way to heaven. He is the one and the only way to heaven. He is not a hope of life. He is the life. Is he your Savior tonight? Pastor House would love to have somebody open the Scriptures. And you can just read it for yourself. It's, it's the first free primary reason of the Bible. So that a sinner like me could know that they have eternal life. And God wants you to come to the Bible and see right from Scriptures how you can know that Christ is your Savior Pastor House would love to be able to help you tonight. Would you let him do that? I know many in this room would say, Preacher, I have trusted Christ and he is my Savior. Well, then tonight you and I have just been issued our orders from an old prophet in the Old Testament. And we can spend our life in worry and fear and screaming at heaven how long and, and live a life of panic and live a life of worry. Or we can rejoice in the Lord in the midst of the worst of times with our feet planted on the rock saying, the Lord is my strength. It's your choice and mine. We can trust him, we can know him, we can fear him, or we can live in panic with the rest of this world. Years ago, the story was told of a mother and her four-year-old daughter. They had recently lost their husband slash daddy. And needless to say, there was a lot of confusion and there was a lot of worry and and there was a lot of sleepless nights. And on one such night, mom was laying in the bed and she couldn't sleep. And all of a sudden, the door opened and her little four-year-old daughter had slipped out of her bedroom. And, and she climbed into bed with her mother and she couldn't sleep as well. And, and for the longest time, mom and the little daughter, they just kind of stared up at the ceiling. And there are a lot of worries and a lot of questions and a lot of things they just didn't know. And in the middle of all the worry, suddenly that little girl looked out the window and saw the light of the moon. And she said, Mama, is the moon God's light? And the mother looked out the window and saw the light of the moon, and she said, well, yes, of course, sweetheart, it's God's light. And that little girl thought about that for a while, and she said, well, Mama, she said, is God going to turn out the light and go to sleep? And the mother thought that through for a little bit, and she said, well, no, sweetheart, God never goes to sleep. He's not going to turn the light out tonight. Well, that little girl thought about that and she stared out the window for a while and finally she said, well, you know, Mama, so long as God's going to stay awake all night, I guess there's no reason for me to stay up too. And a few minutes later, that little girl was fast asleep and that pretty much is the story of Habakkuk. We can start out in panic and fear and worry, but if we get the point of Habakkuk, then the worry turns to faith. And we're going to rejoice in him, put our confidence in him. And in the worst of times, he's going to give us strong, strong feet to stand upon the rock. It's what the Lord does to a people who listen to him. And when we listen to him, well, he's got a word, doesn't he? God says, Father in heaven, I pray tonight that your words would help your people and Lord, may we listen to the prophet Habakkuk battling in his day what we so often face in ours. And Lord, I ask and pray that you would do a great work at Corridor Baptist Church. 
Would you raise up a, a, an army of men and ladies who are determined to stand in faith, believing the Word of God? Lord, the more we draw to you, the more your peace fills our heart. The closer we get to you, the more we are able to rejoice even in the worst of times. And then, Lord, when we are right with you, we are never running and hiding. We are standing firm on a rock. Lord, would you do for us what you did for Habakkuk? Would the great peace of God, would the silence of heaven fill our hearts tonight? I wonder before I finish praying if someone in this place would say, you know, preacher, I'm the one who's not saved. And I don't know if I were to die tonight that I'm going to heaven, but I am concerned about my soul. And, and I would like to know how the Bible says that a sinner like me can have eternal life. You know, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. That means there's no church we join. There's no prayer we pray. Certainly, certainly there is no money we could ever give that would pay for eternity. But the only way a sinner like me can go to heaven is to have a Savior wash his sins away. Is Jesus your Savior tonight? I wonder before I finish praying if someone would say, you know, preacher, I, I need you to pray for me. I want to know how the Bible says I can know that I'm going to heaven. I'd love to pray for you. Then even more, Pastor House would love to have somebody just sit down with a Bible. A lady, if you're a lady, a man with a man. And, and they'd just love to open the Bible and let you see it for yourself. How can a sinner like me have eternal life? You know, it is so clear, it is so beautiful, it's right there in the Bible. And so before I finish praying, is there somebody here tonight that would say, Preacher, I need you to pray for me. Uh, I'm the one who needs to know the Savior. Would you just lift your hand quietly? And We're not going to embarrass you or point you out, but we will be honored to pray for you. And then if you'll allow us, we'd like to help you right from the Bible tonight. That's me. Pray for me. I need to be saved. Somebody like that tonight. Now I'm going to pray and we're going to play and sing that invitation song. And as we do, Brother House is right here with me in the front. And if you're not saved, he'd love to meet you and help you tonight. This altar, these stairs are a great, great place to humble ourselves before the Lord. And, and as the Lord said to Habakkuk on that watchtower, you need to trust me. And you need to get in the Bible and know me. And then you need to tremble before me. Maybe there's somebody tonight who says, you know, the Lord knows it and I know it. And that's all who needs to know. But the Bible's been sitting on the shelf. The Bible's just been sitting on the shelf and it's time for me to get a revival of a love for the Word of God. That's where everything changes. That's where He speaks peace unto His people. So tonight, if God deals in your heart, of course, if the preacher can have somebody pray with you, he'd love to do that. But if you just need to get along with the Lord, the invitation is for you. Father, put the invitation into your hands and ask for your help now. Do your work in our hearts, for we come in the great name of Jesus. Would you stand together with me prayerfully tonight? And as we sing that invitation song and the altar here, the preacher's here, we invite you to step out and come.